Chapter Twenty of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter Twenty: The Love Affairs of a Regent. When Louis the Fourteenth laid down one September day in the year seventeen fifteen, the crown which he had worn with such splendor for more than seventy years, his sceptre fell into the hands of his nephew Philippe, Duc d'Orléans, who for eight years ruled France as regent and as guardian of the child king, the fifteenth Louis. Seldom in the world's history has a reign so splendid as that of the Sun King closed in such darkness and tragedy. The disastrous war of the Spanish succession had drained France of her strength and her gold. She lay crushed under a mountain of debt, ten thousand million francs. She was reduced to the lowest depths of wretchedness, ruin, and disorder, and it was at this crisis in her life as a nation that fate placed a child of four on her throne and gave the reins of power into the hands of the most dissolute man in Europe. Not that Philippe of Orléans lacked many of the qualities that go to the making of a ruler and a man. He had proved himself in Italy and in Spain one of the bravest of his country's soldiers, and an able, far-seeing leader of armies. And he had, as his regency proved, no mean gifts of statesmanship. But his kingly qualities were marred by the taint of birth and early environment. Such good qualities as he had, no doubt drew from his mother, the capable, austere, high-minded Elizabeth of Bavaria, who to her last day was the one good influence in his life. To his father, Louis the Fourteenth's younger brother, who was said to have been son of Cardinal Mazarin, Anne of Austria's lover, and who was the most debased man of his time in all France, he just as surely owed the bias of sensuality to which he chiefly owes his place in memory. And not only was he thus handicapped by his birth, he had for tutor that arch-scoundrel Dubois, the groveling insect who rarely opened his mouth without uttering a blasphemy or indecency, and who initiated his charge, while still a boy, into every base form of so-called pleasure. Such was the man who, amid the ruins of his country, inaugurated in France an era of licentiousness such as she had never known, an incomprehensible mass of contradictions, a kingly presence with the soul of a caliban statesman and sinner high-minded and low-living spending his days as a sovereign a role which he played to perfection and his nights as a sot and a sensualist it was doubtless dubois who was mostly responsible for the baseness in the regent's character dubois who had taught him a contempt for religion and morality the cynical view of life which makes the pleasure of the moment the only thing worth pursuing at whatever cost and who had impressed indelibly on his mind that no woman is virtuous and that men are knaves and there was never any lack of men to continue dubois teaching he gathered round him the most dissolute gallants in france in whose company he gave the rein to his most vicious appetites his roues he dubbed them a title which aptly described them although they affected to give it a very different interpretation they were the regent's roues they said no doubt with the tongue-in-cheek because they were so devoted to him that they were ready in his defence to be broken on the wheel la roue each of these boon comrades was a past master in the art of dissipation and each was also among the most brilliant men of his day the chevalier de simiane was famous alike for his drinking powers and his gift of graceful verse 
Defargy was a polished wit and the handsomest man in France, with an unrivalled reputation for gallantry. The Comte de Nocé was the regent's most intimate friend from boyhood, brother-in-law, he called him, since they had not only tastes, but even mistresses in common. Then there were the Marquis de Lafarge, captain of the guards and bon enfant, the Marquis de Broglio, the biggest débauchée in France, the Marquis de Cagnac, the Duc de Branca, and many others, all famous or infamous, for some pet vice, and all the best of boon companions for the pleasure-loving regent. Strange tales are told of the orgies of this select band which the regent gathered around him, orgies which shocked even the France of the eighteenth century when she was the acknowledged leader in license. At six o'clock every evening, Philippe's kingship ended for the day. He had had enough, more than enough, of state and ceremonial, of interviewing ambassadors, and of the flatteries of princes, and the obsequious homage of courtiers. Pleasure called him away from the boredom of the empire, and at the stroke of six we find him retiring to the company of his mistresses and his roues, to feast and drink and gamble until dawn broke on the revelry, his laugh the loudest, his wit the most dazzling, his stories the most piquant, keeping the table in a roar with his infectious gaiety. He was regent no longer, he was simply a bon camarade, as ready to exchange familiarities with a lady of the ballet as to lead the laughter at a joke at his own expense. At nine o'clock, when the fun had waxed furious and wine had set the slowest tongue wagging and every eye a sparkle, other guests streamed in to join the orgy. The most beautiful ladies of the court, from the Duchesse de Gesors and Madame de Mouchy to the regent's own daughter, the Duchesse de Barry, who, young as she was, had little to learn of the arts of dissipation and in the wake of these high-born women would follow laughing, bright-eyed troops of dancing and chorus girls from the theatres, with an escort of the cleverest actors of Paris, to join the regent's merry throng. The champagne now flowed in rivers, the servants were sent away, the doors were locked, and the fun grew riotous. Ceremony had no place there. Rank and social distinctions were forgotten. Countesses flirted with comedians, princes made love to ballet girls and duchesses alike the leader of the moment was the man or woman who could sing the most daring song tell the most piquant story or play the most audacious practical joke even on the regent himself sometimes we are told the lights would be extinguished and the orgy continued under the cover of darkness until the regent suddenly opened a cupboard in which lights were concealed to an outburst of shrieks of laughter at the scenes revealed thus the mad night hours passed until dawn came to bring the revels to a close or until the regent would sally forth with a few chosen comrades on a midnight ramble to other haunts of pleasure in the capital the lower the better such was the way in which philippe of orleans regent of france spent his nights a few hours after the carouse had ended he would resume his sceptre as austere and dignified a ruler as you would find in europe it must not be imagined that philippe was the only royal personage who thus set a scandalous example to france there was, in fact, scarcely a prince or princess of the blood royal whose love affairs were not conducted flagrantly in the eyes of the world, from the dowager Duchesse de Bourbon, who lavished her favours on the Scotch financier John Law of Lauriston, to the princesse de Conte, who mingled her piety with a marked partiality for her nephew, le Calière. As for the regent's own daughters, from the Duchesse de Berry to Louise, Queen of Spain, each has left behind her a record almost as scandalous as that of her father. 
it was in fact an era of corruption in high places when in the reaction that followed the dismal and decorous last years of louis the fourteenth's reign pleasure rose phoenix-like from the ashes of ruin and flaunted herself unashamed in every guise with which vice could deck her it must be said for the regent corrupt as he was that he never abused his position and his power in the pursuit of beauty his mistresses flocked to him from every rank of life from the stage to the highest court circles but remained no longer than inclination dictated and the fascination is not far to seek for philippe d'orleans was of the men who find easy conquests in the field of love he was one of the handsomest men in all france and to his good looks and his reputation for bravery he added a manner of rare grace and courtliness a supple tongue and that strange magnetic power which few women could resist no king ever boasted a greater or more varied list of favourites in which actresses and duchesses vied with each other for his smiles in a rivalry which seems to have been singularly free from petty jealousy among the beauties of the court we find the duchesse de fédary the duchesse de gesors the comtesse de sabrin at one extreme and actresses like emilie desmarres and la souris at the other pretty butterflies of the footlights who appealed to the regent no more than madame d'averne the gifted pet of france's wits and literary men the most charming blue-stocking of her day and all without exceptions duchesses countesses and actresses were as ready to give their love to philippe the man as to the duc d'orleans regent of france even in his relations with these ministers of pleasure the regent's better qualities often exhibit themselves agreeably to the pretty actress emilie whose heart was so completely his, he always acted with a characteristic generosity and forbearance, and her conduct is by no means less pleasing than his. Once, we are told, when he expressed a wish to give her a pair of diamond earrings at a cost of fifteen thousand francs, she demurred at accepting so valuable a present. If you must be so generous, she pleaded, please don't give me the earrings, which are much too grand for such as me. Give me, instead, ten thousand francs, so that I might buy a small house, to which I can retire when you no longer love me as you do now. Emilie had scarcely returned home, however, when a court official appeared with a package containing not ten thousand, but twenty-five thousand francs, which her lover insisted on her keeping, and when she returned fifteen thousand francs, he promptly sent them back again, declaring that he would be very angry if she refused again to accept them. His love, indeed, for Emilie seems to have been as pure and deep as any of which he was capable. It was no fleeting passion, but an affection based on a sincere respect for her character and mental gifts. So highly, indeed, did he think of her judgment that she became his most trusted counsellor. She sat by his side when he received ambassadors, he consulted her on different problems of state, and it was her advice that he often followed in preference to the wisdom of all his ministers, for, as he said to Dubois, Emilie has an excellent brain. She always gives me the best counsel. When at last he had to part from the modest and accomplished actress, it was under circumstances which speak well for his generosity. A former lover, the Marquis de Fimarcon, on his returning from fighting in Spain, sought Emilie out, and, blazing with jealousy, insisted that she should leave the regent and return to his protection. He vowed that if she refused he would murder her, and when in her alarm she sought refuge in a convent at Charenton, he threatened to burn the nuns alive in their cells unless they restored her to him. Thus it was that rather than allow Emilie to run any risks from her revengeful and brutal lover, the regent relinquished his claim to her, 
and only when Fimarcon's continued brutality at last made intervention necessary did he order the bully to be arrested and consigned to the prison of Fort Lévesque. It is, however, in the story of Mademoiselle Issé, the Circassian slave, that we find the best illustration of the chivalry which underlay the regent's passion for women, and which he never forgot in his wildest excesses. This story, one of the most touching in French history, opens in the year 1698, when a band of Turkish soldiers returned to Constantinople from a raid in the Caucasus, bringing with them, among many other captives, a beautiful child of four years, said to be the daughter of a king. So lovely was the little Circassian fairy, that when the Comte de Feriol, France's ambassador to Turkey, set eyes on her, he decided to purchase her, and she became his property, in exchange for fifteen hundred livres. That she might have every advantage of training to fit her for his seraglio in later years, the child was sent to Paris to the home of the ambassador's brother, President de Feriol, where she grew to a beautiful girlhood as a member of the family, as fair a flower as ever was transplanted to French soil. Thus she passed the next thirteen years of her life, charming all by her sweetness of disposition, as she won the homage of all by her remarkable beauty and grace. Such was Ayesha, or Essie, the Circassian maid, when at last her owner returned to Paris to fall under the spell of her radiant beauty and to claim her as his chattel, bought with good gold and trained at his cost to adorn his harem. In vain did Essie weep and plead to be spared a fate from which every fibre of her being shrank in horror. Her master was inexorable. When I bought you, he said, it was my intention to make you my daughter or my mistress. I now intend that you shall become both the one and the other. Friendless and helpless, she was obliged to yield, and for six years she had to submit to the endearments of her protector, a man more than old enough to be her father, until his death brought her release. At twenty-four, more lovely than ever, combining the beauty of the Circassian with the graces of France, Issy had now every right to look forward at least to such happiness as was possible to a stranger in a strange land. But no sooner was one danger to her peace removed than another sprang up to take its place. The rumor of her beauty and her sweetness had come to the ears of the regent, and strong forces were at work to bring her to his arms. Madame de Tincin was the leader in this base conspiracy, with the power of the Romish church at her back, for with the fair Circassian high in the regent's favor, and a pliant tool in their hands, the Jesuits' influence at court would be greatly strengthened. Dubois was won over to the unholy alliance, and the Duse maîtresse en titre was bribed not only to withdraw all opposition to her proposed rival, but to arrange a meeting between the regent and the victim. Success seemed to be assured. Mademoiselle Essé was to exchange slavery to her late owner for an equally odious place in the harem of the ruler of France. Her tears and entreaties were all in vain. When she begged on her knees to be allowed to retire to a convent, Madame de Ferriol turned her back on her. Her only hope of rescue now lay in the regent himself, and to him she pleaded her cause with such pathetic eloquence that he not only allowed her to depart in peace, but with words of sympathy and promises of his protection in the pure and noble sense of the word. Thus, by the chivalry of the most dissolute man of his age, the Circassian slave-girl was rescued from a life which to her would have been worse than death, to spend her remaining years happy in the love of an honest man, the Chevalier Dédi, until death claimed her while she still possessed the beauty which had been at once her glory and her inevitable shame. The close of the regent's misspent life came with tragic suddenness. 
worn out with excesses while still young in years his doctors had warned him that death might come to him any day but with the light-heartedness that was his to the last he laughed at their gloomy forebodings and refused to take the least precautions to safeguard his health two days before the end came he declined point-blank to be bled in order to avert a threatened attack of apoplexy let it come if it will he said with a laugh i do not fear death and if it comes quickly so much the better on the evening of the second of december seventeen twenty he was chatting gaily to the young duchesse de falary when he suddenly turned to her and asked do you think there is any hell or paradise of course i do answered the duchesse then are you not afraid to lead the life you do well replied madame i think god will have pity on me scarcely had the words left her lips when the regent's head fell heavily on her shoulder and he began to slip to the floor a glance showed her that he was unconscious, and rushing out of the room, the terrified Duchesse raced through the dark, deserted corridors of the palace, shrieking for help. When at last help arrived, it came too late. The regent had gone to find for himself an answer to the questions his lips had framed a few minutes earlier. Is there any hell or paradise? End of chapter 20